knowing that you are praying for our first study in the book of First Thessalonians, which Lord willing will be next Lord's Day, I finish this little mini-series on First Peter. We've gone through several times together looking at submission. We saw in several cases a kind of submission to government, uh, to husbands, to employers, and we are focusing for the last message of that series on some questions that I've been asking and endeavoring to answer regarding some of these matters of submission and response. We talked about some of these questions before regarding this submission and our response of obedience uh, to the Lord. I asked the question, uh, what is faith? We answered that. What is repentance? And we endeavored to give the answer to that question on several places in our Bibles that speak to the doctrine of repentance. And then we talked about what sin is. And we spent a great deal of time talking about regeneration. What is it? And this morning, just as we did last Lord's Day, or two, two Sundays ago, I should say, what is the Lordship of Christ? What is the Lordship of Christ? And you remember in that message, I started in the book of Matthew and gave many, many passages through the Gospels, through the book of Acts, through the Pauline epistles, the general epistles, and also from the book of Revelation, just showing many times, hundreds of, of, of passages, scores of verses that speak about the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That was sort of the, the panoramic view, the broad view. And in this final message for this morning, before we embark upon First Thessalonians, Lord willing, next time, I want to take our attention back to First Peter. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to First Peter chapter 3, First Peter chapter 3. I saved this particular text that refers to the Lordship of Jesus Christ for this morning because I want to endeavor to show us through the whole of 1 Peter the implications of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, especially for these beleaguered believers to whom Peter writes. This is what Peter tells them in 1 Peter 3.15 about the Lord Christ. 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. That's certainly a place, as you can readily see, where Christ is being given the title, the Lord. 
Christ the Lord. I told you last time that the Lord, of course, is a term that is used throughout the New Testament, as we saw many, many places, in which the Lord Jesus Christ is being referred to. And if you look at that word Lord in the Old Testament, it's often likened to the four-letter designation, Y-H-W-H, the so-called tetragrammaton. That's just a fancy word. Tetra, of course, is the designation for four, four letters. Grammaton, just the idea of grammar, writing. The writing of four letters that designates the covenant name of our Lord, our Lord God, Yahweh. And what's so interesting about the New Testament and the New Testament writers is that they have no trouble at all, no trouble at all, designating Jesus as Lord. The idea of, of kurios, the Greek word for Lord, being used interchangeably between the Father and the Son, and you'll find even in the New Testament that the concept of Lord, that word, its meaning, is also used of the person of the Holy Spirit. Apostle Paul designates in 2 Corinthians 3.18, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So you have this uh, declaration of the Lordship of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the title Lord, as it's used for Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, is so important. In this context, it's so important because these beleaguered believers to whom Peter's writing were being told time and time and time again, even under the threat of recrimination, they were told, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. So can you imagine how these these Christians are speaking and living as though Jesus is Lord and not Caesar? And how this, this persecution and this suffering is now going to be pronounced upon so many of these believers in such a way that that threat to replace the lordship of Jesus Christ with the lordship of Caesar is heavy upon them. We know this. It's not as common, of course, in our current day with ourselves here, particularly in the United States, but there are believers, untold numbers of believers around the world, especially in countries in which if you were to declare yourself as that person who is following the Lordship of Jesus Christ, whatever the cost, those are the kinds of declarations that potentially, if not actually, would have you killed. You can see it. You can hear it. You can read about it. In fact, we may even be said to be in a time and in an era where the multiplied numbers of professing Christians who are being killed, even in our own day, perhaps under the cumulative effect of their declaration 
of Jesus as Lord and that making so many people extremely upset who are, of course, non-Christians, that the entirety of those who've given their lives up for Jesus Christ in all the previous centuries may not be making up the number of Christians who are dying today for Christ. Cumulative. And we don't see that here in, in our place. Perhaps one day we might. But for us and for our posterity, the idea of proclaiming Jesus Christ may not be under the threat of persecution or suffering and certainly not death. So pray tell me, why are we not more eager, more pronounced, more aggressive, more willing to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord in a country in which none of those things will likely happen to us? Why aren't we proclaiming Jesus as Lord to those around us, particularly even those around us who we might see quite often, friends, neighbors, family? Now you say, well, if you continue to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to those who aren't desirous of hearing it, you're going to be alienated. You're going to be criticized. You might even be ostracized, particularly in your own family. And if you're ostracized, if you're criticized, if you're marginalized, then perhaps that might be a reason why so many of us aren't very readily and excitedly proclaiming the Lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives. And that may be perhaps why we should end this series from 1 Peter with the help of Peter in this letter. I want to give you a little road trip through 1 Peter, five chapters, that shows the importance of not only affirming, but living under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. For these believers, they are certainly suffering greatly. And if you and I are suffering just a bit, how much more motivation, how much more would our proclamation need to be of the Lordship of Christ when we are suffering very little for the cause of Christ? But even in that little suffering that we may undergo, this little book has much to teach us, especially if our country becomes more divided and you and I are unable at some point to say so readily, Jesus is Lord. So I want to do that for you by simply going through some passages that are amazing to me because they bring us to a point of seeing several elements of how the Lordship of Jesus Christ is to be lived out by all Christians, the motivations and the implications for such. And I want to give you a couple of key words that are in almost all of these texts that will show us how Christians in that day, as they suffered grossly, so much more than we, and how they were able to do it. Because if you've got a a sword to your neck, or if you're about to be stoned to death, how is it that you might be even more vocal in your proclamation of the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Let me tell you how they did it. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. 
1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to go through examples in all five chapters. And one of the things that I want you to notice is that in each of these chapters, all five of them, not too far from the context of Peter writing about the believers and their suffering, is Peter reminding them about Christ's suffering. And that's a key for us. So that if you and I are willing, joyously so, to proclaim Jesus as Lord to our neighbors and our friends and our family so that they might too embrace the Savior, we're doing it even if our suffering is little, but we're doing it because of the cause of Christ and His sufferings to bring our redemption about. 1 Peter chapter 1. First of all, I want you to notice in 1 Peter chapter 1, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, that's chapter 1, verse 1, to those who are elect exiles. Maybe uh, your Bible translation might say in English, chosen exiles. Yes, this is talking about the doctrine of divine election. And in God's divine election, He gives some people out of the mass of sinful humanity the opportunity to be saved from the wrath to come. And so many of these people, and we'll even see the place names of where they have gone or where they are, it says to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, the scattering in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, this is His electing grace, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. You see the Trinitarian nature of this divine election? Father, Spirit, Son. And immediately then, Peter, in talking to these exiles, your translation might say sojourners, it might say uh, uh, those who are strangers. All of those would fit. They've been exited from their country, perhaps maybe because another country has come in and captured that land, pushed them all out, or perhaps they're being pushed out and now they're being driven to other places. Whatever the case may be, Peter immediately says this in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living, what? Hope. That's one of our key words. That's one of our key words. It's going to come up a couple of different times in bold relief. It's going to tell us about the hope of heaven. It's going to tell us about the hope of of forgiven sin. It's going to tell us about the hope that you and I can have even in the face of those who will tell us, I don't want to hear your message. I don't want to hear about Christ. I don't want to hear about His Lordship. And you and I can have the hope that if we're exiles for the faith, if we're strangers, if we're sojourners, wherever we are and in whatever context of our sphere of influence, we have the opportunity to preach the gospel of the Lordship of Jesus Christ come what may, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of what people say about us. Jesus freak, crazy man, 
religious charlatan, fake, phony, fraud. I don't like you. I don't like your message. Don't preach to me. Or perhaps you might have someone who's not saying things like that, but they're saying, tell me more. Tell me more. I'm confused. Well, how is it that you are following Jesus as Lord, but there's so many other religions of the world? Or perhaps they're going to say that inevitable question that comes up so often. And I dealt with this just last Wednesday night in Psalm 75. In fact, even the last three Psalms, Psalms 73 and 4 and 75, where I've talked about a particular word that's used in this discussion with people, and it's called theodicy. Theodicy. That's just a fancy word that theologians have come up with to talk about the justification of God, His fairness, His righteousness, His justice in the face of unspeakable evils in our world. I'll put it in the negative. Someone comes to you and they say, how can you say that Jesus Christ is Lord? How can you say that God is good? How can you say that there's a living hope? How can you possibly say those things in the midst of a world in which there is so much evil? particularly toward women and children who can't defend themselves. How can you say that Jesus Christ is to be followed? How can you possibly assert as a Christian that when the evils of this world are seen so readily by all of us and that God isn't doing something about it right now? If he's a good God, wipe it out. Deal with such injustices of the world. Perhaps what you're really saying is, follow Jesus, but if God isn't doing thing, anything about it, nor Jesus, then what's the use of the following? If you say, follow Jesus Christ, what's the use of following Him? What's the use of bowing to His Lordship when all the evils that are occurring in the world, especially toward these precious children that you and I see on the television screen or on the internet, and, and they are dying by the droves, uh, the, the dysentery, uh, the, the human disasters, the natural earthquakes and tsunamis of the world. You're telling me that God controls all of this? You're telling me, you're trying to assert to me that God is good with all the evil in this world? And the answer is, yes. God is good. And that for those who are avoiding the wrath to come, because if you're seeing all the evil in this world, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because there's going to be in the future the greatest of great conflagrations. A war to end all wars. A battle to end all battles. When there is a final attempted usurpation of the God is good whom we worship kind of following. And if, in fact, there is a living hope, then God is a God of justice and righteousness and fairness. And He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Do you think that those people who were suffering and reading Peter's words would have 
a living hope hearing such a thing? How so? Complete the sentence. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Easter's coming. We're going to have a sunrise service. I've asked another church to join us. We'll see if they will. And if we have uh, many, many people on that patio, on that uh, glorious day in which the sun shall rise, and we're worshiping Jesus Christ as local churches, and we're proclaiming our living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, some people will say, well, that's, that's all good and well, but how about my help for the here and now? Answer those questions that you posed a moment ago. How can these things happen? And answer this dilemma. If you say that you've been born again through a living hope based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, why is it that even Christians suffer as they do? That's an evil that you don't seem to have an answer for because of all of this suffering. Even those who are suffering for the lordship of Jesus Christ in other countries of the world and who are dying by the lopping off of their heads because they will not renounce the lordship of Jesus Christ. Do you have a plan for that? Is that in the fine print of Christianity? And here's Peter's answer. Notice what he says. He says in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, that mentions trials. That's mentioning a a testedness by fire. Our our religion, our Christianity, it, it has an understanding about trials. It has an understanding about suffering. There are principles to use. And in these principles, not far from there, you have this phrase in verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted, notice this, the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. You see that within Christianity... Regardless of how much you're suffering, even if you are, as some Christians are, even right now, suffering under the threat of a sword to their throat, even at this very moment. We have a theology for that. We have a theodicy for that. That God is good, and that God is just, and that God is righteous, and that God is holy. And that this testing of our faith, even if it means our death for proclaiming the Lordship of Jesus Christ, And here's the reality of it. Sufferings, subsequent glories. You see that? Sufferings, yes, even the sufferings of Christ, but also subsequent glories, which means that there is great continuity between this life and the life to come. You see, that's why so many people have problems 
in seeing all of the evils and ills of this world because they are so tied to the discontinuity of not knowing what's out there in the great beyond and they only know of what's here in this life. We would say, though we want to fear at times those who might put us to death, we also want to fear the one who actually can destroy both body and soul in hell. And we're working toward not even fearing at all those who might kill the body. I remember a couple of years ago when R.C. Sproul was battling with his health and he was on a panel at Ligonier and somebody asked him from the audience, do you fear death? And I'll never forget his answer. He said, of course not. I know where I'm going. I don't fear. I don't fear the reality of death. We're all going to die. He said, what I'm a little uncomfortable about is the manner of my death. And that's real, isn't it? It's not the issue of the fact of my dying. It's the manner of my dying that sometimes has me a little concerned. And none of us know exactly what will happen, when it will happen. Some of us have a little bit more of a forewarning. Maybe it's through suffering. Maybe it's through a suffering of a disease. Maybe, it's, maybe if, it, if it's a prolonged illness, you might understand a little bit of the manner of your dying. Some of it is very quick. Just, just over the last several days, a dear brother and friend who I've served on a subcommittee with with the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, George Scipione, we called him Skip, his wonderful wife, Eileen, whom we affectionately call Cookie. And Cookie and Skip went in for some testing. He wasn't feeling well, and he received the diagnosis. You have adenocarcinoma, the same cancer that my wife has, adenocarcinoma. In his case, adenocarcinoma of the pancreas, which is now spread stage 4 to your liver, and there is no treatment for you. And within a couple of weeks... He died just this week. So perhaps at times it's the manner of death that sort of hangs us up in suspension of trusting God, wanting to trust God, wanting to to be someone who is asking God for help and assistance in the manner of my death. But if if we're Christians in the full-blown sense of being born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, it's not the fact of my death. We're all going to die. And the suffering that you and I undergo, especially persecution and suffering for the the cause of Christ, Christ himself suffered. He gives us a model. He gives us an example. No wonder Peter says this in verse 13 of that first chapter, therefore, preparing your minds for action. For action. Being sober-minded, set your hope, there's that word hope again, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So either at your death personally, you will see the revelation of Jesus Christ, or if you're alive when he comes, you'll see the revelation of Jesus Christ if you know him. And then most interestingly, verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, 
This is a quotation right out of Leviticus 11.44. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. That's a key word, conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves, there's conduct again, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And there's that word exile again, your sojourn. You and I have alien status. You might not think about that for yourself, but we're alien to this world. As the song says, I am just a passing through. This world's not my home. I'm just a passing through. And in the meantime, you and I, as aliens, as strangers, as exiles, we're to conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of such exile. This is, this is Peter preparing the people to whom he writes in all of these places to prepare their minds for action, to be sober-minded, to set our hope fully on the grace that's to be brought to us. So how are you doing in your preparation of the mind? Are you preparing your minds for action? Perhaps if you were more bold in proclaiming the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you'd have to prepare your minds for the action of being ridiculed. Perhaps you might need to work on your apologetics, your defense of the faith. Perhaps more study, perhaps more reading, perhaps more meditation, perhaps more preparation for the action of engaging a hostile world. Being sober-minded, he says. That's a kind of sobriety spiritually that is arming us for the battle that's happening today after the noon hour through the double doors into a watching hostile world. So that's 1 Peter 1. It's talking about suffering. It's talking about being in exile. It's talking about hope. It's talking about conducting yourselves. What about chapter 2? Look at chapter 2. Verse 4, as you come to him, this is Peter now talking to these beleaguered folks, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. There's the election again, the divine election. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He's using the metaphor of a house, a spiritual house, with you and me being living stones in this spiritual house. We're... We're in the construction business. We're in the spiritual construction business. Now, I know most of us would say, yeah, that's why I'm studying. That's why I'm growing. That's why I'm praying. That's why I'm meditating. That's why I'm involved in a flocks group. That's why I'm involved in a Bible study. That's why I'm reading the Scripture on my own. Yes, but where's the evangelism in that? See, because you're, you're not like the Dead Sea. A whole bunch of rich minerals are inside, but there's no outlet You've got to take some of these rich minerals that you've been given and, and you've got to go 
outside of the Dead Sea area, and you've got to find those whom God has chosen and speak the gospel, speak a word of of that to them so that they can join you in the spiritual construction of the house. Because this isn't just your own personal life as a construction worker. This is you along with all the rest of us as together we're building a spiritual house and it includes the idea of evangelizing the lost so that they can come with us and build the house together with ourselves. This is, this is huge. This is, this is a mandate. This is, this is not an option. Verse 11 of 1 Peter 2, Beloved, I urge you, notice that word, I urge you. We were talking about this this, this morning in the 9 o'clock hour. I, I beg you. I, I want to I urge you in, in the strongest possible way as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct, there it is again, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and they, they themselves, the people that you're witnessing to by both your life and your lips, and they will glorify God on the day of visitation. And I don't think that's the future day of visitation. That's what I believe is Christ visiting them in salvation via your good deeds. Christ visiting them to bring them to himself through your witness. Boy, wouldn't that be a joy? Think about the time any one of you, and we don't want to single anybody out and exclude anybody, but for those of you who have actually had the personal privilege of leading someone to Jesus Christ, there is nothing like it. There's nothing like it. I've had this this occasional privilege where someone will come up to me and say something like, I, I, I heard you speak, I, I heard you preach, I, I heard you on the radio, and, and I came to faith in Christ. I mean, what a, what a joy. Although I don't, I don't want to just hide behind a microphone, behind a pulpit. I want to talk to people. I want to engage them in conversation. Why? Because I want to show them that we can be different than the world, and we can do our good deeds and glorify God when he comes to visit them in salvation through yours or my witness. And not lurking too far down the road is this very clear idea. Look at verse 19 of chapter 2. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? And what's the answer to the rhetorical question? If you sin and you're beaten for it, what credit is there? By the way, the word credit there is also a synonymous term with the idea of grace. What grace is there if you are sinning and then you're beaten for it? The answer is no grace, no credit. But if you're suffering unjustly, and that's what he says in verse 20, but if when you do good, that's good works, good deeds, including your evangelism, and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Gracious. 
For to this, to this what? To this suffering. To this you have been called. You've been called to suffering. Some of you may say, wait a minute. When I bowed my head and received Jesus Christ, I didn't know that was a part of the calling. You have been called, and notice the emphasis again, because Christ also suffered for you. He's your example. He suffered. And if the Christ followers are watching the Christ suffer, is it any wonder that the Christ followers will also suffer? And when we suffer, we'll experience the great continuity of the life to come. We'll suffer here, and then we'll have the subsequent glories there. And who is this Christ who suffered? I'll tell you who he is. He called you to suffer, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. What steps? He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him, that is to God the Father, who judges justly or righteously. Boy, what a pattern. What an example. So Peter is saying, I know you're suffering. Dear believers, dear beloved brothers and sisters, I know you're suffering. And you're suffering according to the pattern of Christ's own suffering. And here's how he did it, and here's your calling, and here's your example to follow him in his steps. And then you get to chapter 3. Look at verse 8. Finally, all of you, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. You see, it's always about your thinking first and foremost. In fact, I could say it probably this way. You want a, you want a one-sentence message today? I'm not going to stop after I give it to you, so don't be happy about that. Here's the one sentence. It's something like this. Your very start in the heart. Your very start in the heart reveals the scope of your hope. Your very start of the heart. The very first thing you think of when you wake up in the morning. The very first thing that is uppermost in your mind. The very first principles that you'd be willing to die for. The things that you know you're going to be sober-minded about. The things that you know that will allow you to prepare your mind for action. Your start of the heart reveals the scope of your hope. Remember the living hope? Remember the hope? The hope of our calling, the hope of the resurrection of the dead, the very scope, the extent, what you can see about a person's hope, about suffering, yes, but the glories to follow, that ought to dominate your thinking, especially when you're thinking about witnessing to somebody else. Look, the the start of my heart reveals the scope of my hope. I have a living hope because Jesus Christ was resurrected from from the dead and I too shall be resurrected so that if in fact I'm suffering even for the sake of the gospel, even with a gun to my head or a knife to my throat, the start in my heart reveals the scope of my hope. And the scope of my hope is Jesus Christ. 
Look at verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Bless those who are reviling you, for to this end you were called that you may obtain a blessing. What's the blessing? The hope of eternal life. And he's telling them, according to verse 13, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? I tell you, I tell you who's there to harm me, zealously so, these persecutors. I mean, that's the ready answer on the part of these people who are beleaguered and they're out of their homes and they've been tortured. What do you mean, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? I've been doing all kinds of good. I've been talking about Jesus Christ. I've been talking about the Lord. I've been doing my evangelistic duty. And I want to do the right thing. And I want to say the right things. And I want people to come to Christ. And it seems as though I never get a positive answer. Is nobody listening? Is the gospel falling on deaf ears? Well, remember the doctrine of divine election. Who's the one who does the choosing? It's God himself. What do you and I do? We sow the seed. That's what we do. We sow the seed. And we leave the results up to him. That's that's success in witnessing, my friends. You take the initiative to share the message of Jesus Christ knowing that you must and inevitably will leave the results squarely in God's hands. But, but you don't just say, well, if he's got it all wired, if he knows who the elect are, then I'll just let him do his job all the way. Well, there's a, another part to the premise, and that is, and he's choosing to do it through your gospel witness. You're the very means whereby the elected ones are discovering their election through your witness. That's the good here. That's being zealous for what is good. You say, well, how do you know that? Look at verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, it's not just what you say out of your mouth. It's the way you live your life. You're living under the lordship of Christ. You will be blessed. And then he gives them this encouragement. And by the way, this is right out of Isaiah chapter 8. This, this next phrase is coming almost verbatim out of Isaiah chapter 8. And you know what the context is there? A looming Assyrian invasion. And here's what he says to them through Isaiah's prophecy, and here's what Peter says to us. Have no fear of them. You say, the guy with the sword you're, you're mentioning? Uh, the, the, the guy... Who, who might actually do me harm, have no fear of them nor be troubled. One translation, have no fear of them nor be feared. But in your hearts, now we know the context of 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. What's that talking about? It's talking about setting apart Christ as holy in your hearts. In your hearts, set apart Christ as holy. The start of your heart. The start of your heart reveals the scope of your hope that Jesus Christ is alive, that he is your Lord, and you have set him apart in your life, in your heart as what? Holy. You are to be holy for he is holy. 
And part of the holiness of our lives is the holiness of our message. The holiness of what we live and the holiness of what we say. And then here's the apologetics. Always being prepared to make a defense. In fact, that very word defense is the word out of which we claim our English word apologetics. Apologia. Make a defense. And I love the next phrase. Make a defense to anyone. To anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope. That's the scope of your hope. The scope of that, the extent of it, the way you evaluate it, is that if you really truly believe that you have a living hope in Jesus Christ, it gives you a holy boldness in talking to others. A holy boldness. Because someone may even dare to ask you once they have perceived that you're a Christian. And perhaps they might perceive you're a Christian if you tell them you're one. I'm, I'm a Christian. Are you a Christian? I, I don't even know what you're talking about. Well, you see, a Christian is a person, and then you explain the gospel. And then they might say, well, look, um, there's a reason I don't believe that. What about all the evil in the world? Well, perhaps it would be good for us to to come up with not an elaborate, substantial, highly reasoned argument, but one that might be sufficient enough as God might be working on their human heart for the sake of the gospel so that they say, I think maybe I'm understanding that for the first time. That, That was a good answer. Tell me more. Now, that's not going to happen every time, but it might happen in your case with an individual whom God has ripening them through the call of the gospel to receive the gospel through your own witness. By the way, when it says, make a defense, an apologia to anyone who asks you for a reason, the word reason is logos, a word. Give them a word for the hope that is in you. And notice now, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Why? Because they're not my enemy. They're my mission field. Now, might they think I am their enemy? To be sure. Especially if they're volatile and they want to argue. And that's why he says, do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, and the assumption is that we will be, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, and sometimes it is, than for doing evil. And then notice, right in verse 18, right on the heels of it, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. There's the example again. There's the work of the cross. There's the satisfaction. There's the atonement. There it is. You don't have to go far in Peter to talk about your own suffering without seeing right on the heels of that Christ's suffering. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Here it is again. Therefore, since therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh. There it is again. There's almost as much said in 1 Peter about Christ's suffering than is being said about our suffering. Does that encourage anybody? 
encourages me greatly. I'm not too far from the reality that the start of my heart to reveal the scope of my hope is that Christ suffered for you, Christ suffered for you, Christ died for you. You're not doing anything that Christ himself did not go through. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions but for the will of God. And here's that... uh, Here's that conduct thing again. For the time that is past, verse 3, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And what do they want to do? What do the pagans, the unbelievers want to do? Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Boy, what a list, huh? With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them. Hey, come to the party! They're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So my friends, it always starts with the heart. And the start of the heart reveals the scope of your hope which also then produces the construct of your conduct. That's, that's what it does. It cleans your life up. Because how do you want to go witnessing to somebody about Jesus Christ and they say, but wait a minute, I saw you doing some of the same. You were at that party that I threw. You, you were the biggest wine-bibber of the bunch. I saw you flopping around. You didn't even have your wits about you. And, and, and you're commending the gospel to me? I think not. Or they might say, great, that's what it means to live the Christian life. I'm all in. Verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Okay, well, I signed up for all of the the bounties of heaven, for eternal life, for all the goodies, and now... I'm being told that you're going to suffer, and I'm saying, wait a minute, something strange is happening. I'm suffering for Christ. Yes, verse 13, but rejoice. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. And there it is again, Christ's sufferings. That you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed wait a minute, somebody's got something topsy-turvy here. Blessed when I mention Christ and I suffer for it? But notice, here's that construct of the conduct. Look at verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian... You've got a good construction going on with your conduct like a spiritual house. Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. The name of Christ. And what name is it? Lord. Lord. The Lord Christ. And then chapter 5. So I exhort you, 
chapter 5, verse 1, the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Well, there it is, five times. Five times in five chapters, Christ's sufferings, Christ's sufferings. It's right there. And Peter says, as well as my being, Peter talking about himself, a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. There it is, suffering glory, suffering glory, suffering glory. He says in verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. In context now, you've got the context of all five chapters. What kind of anxieties might Peter be referring to? A bad toenail? Somebody who is thinking about things that to them are huge? You know, like the idea, well, I had surgery and, you know, you're not particularly interested until you have the surgery. He's saying here, the anxieties, clearly in the context of the five chapters in this book, anxieties, 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 the anxieties of what you're suffering and how you're trying to preach Christ. And when you throw your anxieties on Him, He cares for you. No wonder it says in verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful, And we know who the adversary is, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And now you know the source of the one who's creating all the suffering under the providence of God that you and I are experiencing. And what are we to do with him? Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You know how encouraging it is to know that when you're suffering, your brothers and sisters around the world are also suffering? You say, that does not encourage me at all. That doesn't encourage me. You think I care what's happening to some guy in Bora Bora? You should. Because he's suffering for Christ just like you are. That's the brotherhood. Verse 10, and after you've suffered a little while. Don't you, don't you love it? It's just for a little while. You've got all eternity. You've got the, the rest of eternity to have no suffering and all the glory. So in comparison, it's just a little while. And, and after such a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. No wonder, verse 11 says, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And I can't resist the end of verse 12. Peter says, everything I'm telling you, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Oh, my This is what it means to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. This is is what we do. This is who we are. The, The very start of your heart is the scope of your hope, which produces the construct of conduct in our lives. It's all there. We have it all there. Let's pray and ask God to allow us the privilege of suffering. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we're not those who are saying, bring on the suffering, I enjoy it so much. We are saying if, if these believers to whom Peter's writing needed the kind of encouragement and the fortifying of their souls as they suffered, perhaps if we were more bold, we too would be suffering. And if we are, please allow the start, the very start of my heart to keep revealing the scope of my hope, my hope in Jesus, my hope for the life to come, my hope for the glory that's after the suffering, which produces in me right now the construct of my conduct. And it's cleaning up my life. I don't want to be a hypocrite. I want Jesus Christ to be pleased with my life and my thoughts and my conduct even when nobody else is looking. And I pray, Heavenly Father, for all of us, myself most especially, that we would be bold, that we would be desirous of sowing seed and seeing others come into the kingdom, even through their potential suffering, and then we shall all be in glory. Oh, may it be so. We ask these things in the powerful name of our Savior, the Lord. Jesus Christ. Amen.